0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you
1: did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at (laughs) thequiz.fox. For many collegiate women, Greek life provides the opportunity for sisterhood, philanthropy, and community. When Kathy Kleiner enrolled at Florida State University as a freshman in 1977, she was excited to join a sorority. After finishing the rush process, she pledged to the Chi Omega sorority and was thrilled to be surrounded by so many new sisters. Every night felt like a sleepover in the Chi Omega house. Kathy and her friends would gather in each other's rooms, borrow clothes, paint each other's nails, and plan out their weekend fun. The sorority house was a place that provided a sense of community, sisterhood, and security. But one night, that sacred sense of safety was shattered. On the night of January 14th, 1978, Kathy lay asleep in her bed, only to be awoken by the sound of her bedroom door opening and a thud upon her floor. As her eyes opened, she saw a dark figure hovering above her, his arm raised over his head. Suddenly, his arm came crashing down, and he slammed a piece of oak firewood onto Kathy's face. Her jaw joints were broken, her cheek ripped open, her tongue almost completely severed. The monster who carried out that nightmarish attack was Ted Bundy. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Both Kathy and her roommate, Karen, were two victims of Ted Bundy who survived his horrific attack at the Chi Omega house. However, they lost two sorority sisters that night. Ted Bundy bludgeoned and strangled 21-year-old Margaret Bowman and 20-year-old Lisa Levy while they were sleeping. Throughout her recovery process, Kathy was changed by the horrors and pain that had been inflicted on her. The vicious attack sent Kathy into a sea of darkness, and for a long time, it seemed impossible to find her way out. But over time, Kathy envisioned a small island in the middle of that sea, with a chair waiting for her. And gradually, she made her way there. In her book, A Light in the Dark, Surviving More Than Ted Bundy, Kathy details the unthinkable attack, the aftermath, and her journey to heal her trauma. Today, she joins me to share her story of survival and her message of hope for others experiencing darkness as well.
0: I was sick all the time and my parents took me to the hospital for a doctor's exam and I ended up staying there for three months because they didn't know what I had in 1976 or uh, 71 actually, they didn't know lupus and a child and it was just nothing they put together. So they weren't looking for that. They were doing all kinds of tests. And at the end of three months, they said to my parents to send me home and just keep me comfortable because I was dying and they didn't know why. So there was a doctor, we were in Miami, and there was a doctor, La Bastida, who was from Cuba, and she asked my parents if she could try experimental chemo. And my parents were like, sure, anything, you know, just try to save our baby. So um I did do that. And after about two sessions, I lost all my hair and I was real puny and just sick. And because of the chemo, I wasn't allowed to go out or have anyone come in. So um for, you know, the whole year, I was just sitting out and looking out the window and watching the kids play. And, you know, it was just a sad time. It was lonely And I knew I wasn't going to stay like that. I knew, you know, once that door opened, I was going to keep going. I didn't want to dwell on what I had been through. I just wanted to see what else was out there. I didn't want it to follow me. So it sounds like even at this
1: young age of 13, you had or developed this resiliency, a conviction, a determination that that was not the end. Yes, definitely. And share about how that came into play years later.
0: It was in 1978. I graduated from high school, which I loved. I actually joined theater department when I was um, as a freshman, and I loved it. I made some best friends, and I learned how to act and play and be anyone I wanted to be except that sick little kid that was home in seventh grade with no hair, Mm -hmm. and I could put her as far away from me as I wanted to. So after high school, I decided to go to FSU. My parents lived in Miami, and I figured out that Florida State was as far away, away from Miami as I could get and still get in-state tuition. <laughs> so that was why I was like, "Go FSU!" So a bunch of my friends went there from from high school as well, and it was great. I joined. Um, I moved into a dorm in my freshman year, and I also pledged Chi Omega sorority. And what that is, is you go and visit sororities and sororities uh, get to know you better. And at the end of the week, you choose a sorority and they choose a person. And if you two match, then you join the sorority. If I wanted a sorority like Kayo and they didn't ask me to join them, then I wouldn't have anywhere, any other sororities. So thank goodness I pledged Kayo and they accepted me. So this is the fall of 1976. And um, I lived in the dorm, which my parents hated. They thought it was so unsafe and anyone could walk in at any time. And they insisted I stayed in an all-female dormitory because it was, it was just something they thought was safer than the co-ed dorms. Can I
1: ask you, uh, the reason that they thought that, had something happened to make them think that? Or was that just a
0: they, yeah, they were overprotective, I think, because of the lupus. They wanted to make sure, you know, I was in the best hands could be. And they, you know, you hear all kinds of things that can happen in a dormitory. So it came to be the summer of 77. And I was uh, going to go back to the dorm again the fall. But my parents made arrangements for me to move into the Kyle Mega House for the fall. And they thought it was such a nice, safe place and that their little daughter was gonna be good there. I can't imagine the angst they must have felt when they put me in that house and then knowing what happened. I mean, we never even talked about it. I didn't wanna bring up that terrible feeling for them and they just never talked about it. So, but I, you know, as as a mother, I can only imagine putting their daughter in that. Um, So the fall of 77, I joined Caio and I moved into the room. And it was great. I had an upperclassman as a roommate and we were decorating the room and picked out a a bed sheet and bedspreads that just brought life into the bedroom. We lived in the uh, the sorority house. We were on the second floor of the sorority and our our room faced the back parking lot. And we had a a bankman of windows that went all across the back of the wall and we had curtain rods open and the curtains were open all the time because we hung rods and had beautiful plants hanging down. And the the room was about the size of a dormitory and it kind of mirrored the sides. You walked into the room, we had beautiful plush carpet and on the left was my closet. And then next to that was my dresser and I had my little makeup and my little things on it. And then next to that going down the wall was my desk. And then at the end of the wall was my twin bed and my headboard faced against that back wall where the windows were and in between our beds we had a little footlocker that they called then it was just a little footlocker and we had books on it and i put my glasses on it and it was just extra storage we had in the sorority house so i was so happy to be there and can you describe um
1: so how many girls lived total in the sorority and you talked about how your parents put you there what was that what was the living situation like in general because for example, in my in my college, um, you lived in the sorority house all four years. You had to. There was no other option. You could be a senior, live out if you got enough points. But for the most part, everyone had to live in. So were there some girls in your class that weren't there? What was the amount of you that lived there? Tell us about the rest of the house.
0: Okay. There were um, about 40 girls that lived in the house. And Kyle had a, a larger amount of sisters than that. So if you were fortunate enough to get into the sorority house, most uh, lived in dorms or um, on off-site campuses, um, apartments. So it wasn't mandatory. There were other things we had to do, like go to meetings and everything that were mandatory. But at the Cayo, we were just, um, it was a beautiful big building and had, um, downstairs was a beautiful living room and dining area. And then we had a former parlor. And around the corner was the rec room, and that was a big room with lots of pillows and sofa and TV. It was just a place all the girls could hang out. And then, if you go upstairs, up the big wooden staircase in the foyer, upstairs went to two long rows of uh, rooms, so two hallways. And um, so each girl had two, each room had two sorority sisters that lived in it. And um, most rooms were taken. I mean, everyone wanted to be in the house. So uh, most of the sorting rooms were full. And it was just, it was fun. It was always having people around. And I had one sister and one brother when I was growing up. And just to have all these girls and friends and pajama parties and, you know, doing the coyote, what we had to do, and then going out on campus. And we had fun with parties. And it was a great place. It was a happy place happy place, far, far removed from when I was, you know, had chemo and was home alone. This was just, this was what I was living for. You know, all that just slid further and further behind me. And um, I was living for the moment.
1: So then how long did that happy chapter last before everything changing?
0: I moved into the house in the fall of 77 Mm -hmm. in January, December of 77, and January of 78, it was um, a regular school, you know, week, and calculus test, and all this other stuff I had to go through, and then Friday night, a big, big frat party, and on Saturday, Saturday the uh, 14th of January, I went to a wedding during the day, and hung out with friends, and it became really, really cold, it was uh, warm one day, and cold the next in Tallahassee. So I got to wear a heavy blank uh, sweater that I never really wore before. And I love the change. Being from Miami, it was always warm. So having this little change in the climate was was great. I was loving it. So that was Saturday the 14th and went to the party, went to the wedding, went to a party after, decided to go home early because I had to test for calculus on Monday and I wanted to get some studying done. So I did. I went back to the sorority house. And it was full of girls. I was coming back early and everyone was just going out for the night, Mm. you know, so it was it was fun. But uh, my roommate was in my room and she was doing a sewing project on her board on her bed. So I got my book and I'm sitting up and I'm studying. And finally, around 1130, she and I decided to go to sleep. So we turned off our lights and we closed our door and we promptly I, I went right to sleep and it was so quiet inside the bedroom It was comfortable, the temperature. It was cold out, so the temperature felt good. I remember sleeping, and then I heard a noise, and I didn't know what it was. It it woke me a little bit. It was the sound of the door scraping against the carpet when it was being opened up. And I heard that sound, and it wasn't enough to wake me up, just kind of, what is that sound? And the next thing I know, I hear this loud thud. Someone had entered our room and tripped over that little footlocker that we had between our beds. Now I'm awake and I'm looking. I'm looking at him and I see someone standing next to me. And he seemed like a big, big thing, this big black mass. And I saw him raise his arm up over his head. And he had something in his hand. I couldn't tell, but that ended up being a piece of firewood that he had picked up when he came in the back door of the sorority house our combination lock wasn't working. So he just opened the door and walked in, picked up that piece of firewood from the firewood pile by the door and walked up into the sorority house. He came into our bedroom. Well, first he went into Margaret Bowman's bedroom. She was a sorority sister that was a upperclassman. She was beautiful. She always had time to speak with everybody and she was just so polite and sweet and comfortable to be with. He attacked her with that piece of log, and he hit her on the head so hard that it exposed her skull. And she she was laying there, and then he strangled her. So he left her dead and went across the hall to the next room, and that was Lisa Levy's room. And again, he attacked her with the log. He closed her door, and that's when he walked into our room, and that's when I heard the carpet swiss against the bottom of the door. So now I'm seeing this guy standing next to me with something in his arm and it turned out to be that piece of firewood that he had picked up and he slammed it down on my face so hard. It tore a hole in my cheek so you could see the teeth in my mouth through my cheek. It broke the jaw in two places and shattered the chin bone so bad that they had to just reconstruct it with wire. I was sitting there now. At first, it's weird because it didn't hurt. It was just like a thud. I guess your mind's trying to capture everything that's going on. And pain wasn't exactly right at that moment. It might have taken three minutes. And then it hurt. It hurt so bad. And so all this commotion woke up my roommate. So this person tripped over that trunk again to get to her side of the bed. And he attacked her with the same club, the same piece of firewood. He heard me still alive. I was trying to moan and groan and scream, but all I was making were little squeaky sounds because my my jaw was open and I touched my face and it was warm and sticky from all the blood and I couldn't talk. My tongue was almost shivered off, shaved off. So it was just, I was in a bad state and I I didn't think this man had gone yet. And I put myself under the covers in the smallest little ball I could make myself because I figured if he couldn't see me, he wouldn't hit me. And I knew if he hit me again, I'd be dead. So he came back over and he moved the sheets and he saw me, my little ball, and he raised his arm up again. And just before he threw it down on me, the light shone up in the room. Our bedroom, actually bright light was in there. You could see everything and I could see this person now, but without my glasses, I couldn't see his face. So he looked there and he was spooked around and he kind of moved around a little bit and he got spooked because I think he thought the light coming in is going to catch him. He didn't understand it was the parking lot below us and a car was coming into the parking lot that we faced. So that's what it was. And I don't think he knew. He thought somebody else must have been in there. Bundy was non-confrontational. He always attacked women from the back or he killed them asleep in their bed. And that's what he was trying to do with my roommate and I, is just kill us asleep in our bed, as he did with Margaret and Lisa, my sorority sisters. So now he's all wrapped up, and he runs out my door. And I'm laying there, and I'm hurting, and I'm screaming and yelling, and all I'm doing is making gurgling sounds. And the light went out in the room, and it became all dark again. And I scrunched down into my littlest ball, because I thought, with the room dark, He's got to be coming back to hit me again. And that's what I remember that night until the paramedics came. And 911 was called. The girls called 911 because my roommate had gotten out of her bed and walked down into the hallway where one of the other sorority sisters saw her. And they turned her around to walk us, walk her back into our bedroom, turned on the light and that they saw that she was bloody and they saw me in a little ball bloody and my sheets were all bloody and the wall was bloody and there was oak bark on the ground so that's how the police knew exactly what happened to us that he had hit us with the club of wood so I'm laying there and on my bed and I'm hurting and I see a police officer I look up and there he is there's a policeman standing right next to my head and I said oh my god I'm not going to get hit again this policeman's going to save me he's going to protect me And I know I passed in and out of consciousness during this whole time. But the paramedics put me on the stretcher and was carrying me down that beautiful wooden staircase that I love that went into the foyer. And it was so cold out. They had the doors open and they were carrying me down on a stretcher. And I started freezing. It was misty and cold. It was like 30 degrees. And they carried me in the stretcher and they the lights were all around the police lights, the ambulance lights, and the fire truck lights. And the police and everyone were talking on their walkie talkies. And they walked me down. And for a minute, I thought I was in a carnival. I looked to my side and I could see the carnival row and I could see the Ferris wheel at the very end. And I could hear everyone talking and having a good time. And then I looked around and it was dark again. And they put me into the ambulance. And I think that carnival kind of helped me to just tell that my life was not dead. You know, that was, uh, it was a happy thing to think about. It wasn't just black from being outside. So I appreciate my mind helping me cope with that as well. We're going to take
1: a quick break. More from our guest after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. So tell us about then the aftermath and your recovery and the families of the girls and your sisters, the sorority sisters, um, that terrible ripple impact that Ted Bundy had?
0: When I was attacked, I didn't even know of Ted Bundy. I have no clue, you know, who he was. And people said, were you following him? this, you know, no, I was at frat parties. So I didn't know who he was. And when he had left our house, he went down and killed another woman or attacked another woman, Cheryl, that lived in a duplex down the house. And when I left the hospital, it was a week later, they were driving me back to to the airport for me and my parents to fly back down to Miami where I was living then. And they wanted to drive me by the Chi Omega house and they stopped in front of it. And my mouth is wired shut and my, my, ban- my head is bandaged and I was hurting. And I'm like, Rub- <laughs> what, <laughs> what are we doing? And they said, we want you to check your room to see if anything was missing off the dresser or anything. And I'm like, I couldn't do it. But an officer took each elbow and walked me up slowly up the staircase. And I turned the corner and I saw Lisa's room and Margaret's room. Their doors were closed and they had yellow crime scene tape around the door. I had no idea what that meant. Then they walked me into my room. They left the yellow tape and I walked in. And there were people in there and it was like a blur. Everything was happening. And really all I saw was the black dust for fingerprints that was all over everything. And they said, do you see anything missing from your dresser? And at that point, I don't remember what was on the dresser to see if anything was missing, but my eyes followed down the wall and I saw my bed and my beautiful bedspread I had just purchased in December. It was all balled up in a little ball. It was all Brown with stained blood. And it was at, at the foot of the bed, and then the sheets had been taken off the mattress, but it was bloody. It was all brown blood, and the walls had blood on it, and I I, I said, I want to go. I, I don't want to be here, <laughs> but I'm glad I did in a way because I know exactly what happened. I know exactly where it happened, and I wouldn't have in the future try to make something up to make it fit the story because I saw it myself, mm-hmm. and I think that gave me some stability and also some power over the situation because I had walked away from that. I left Tallahassee then and stayed in Miami for recuperation. And I was I was mad. I was hurting. I was angry. I was depressed. I was mad. I was mad that I had to leave our state. And I was mad I had to leave the sorority house and all my friends and sisters. And I was just mad I was taken home and I was home alone now with my family to recuperate. And I tried calling the sorority sisters a couple times, and I could only talk like this if you have your jaws clenched. So a couple times, my mother and I sat in the kitchen in Miami and called the sorority house, and we had to leave messages for the girls because no one at that point was there when we called. And no one called me back. There were weeks afterwards, and mom said, don't call anymore. They know you're here. And they never called me. They never reached out to me. And for the longest time, that hurt so bad. It hurt that healing mentally was as hard as healing physically. And that just changed my life again. I was in this road. and I felt so deserted and trying to recuperate. And I knew I would. I knew I'd get better from this. It just was going to take a long time because I wasn't going to let this thing stop me. Nothing had stopped me with lupus in this situation. I didn't know how long it would take to get through it, but I knew I would. And when I was at home and depressed and hurting, I wanted to get away from it. And I felt like I had a black cloak over me, this black, just haze. And it scared me and I didn't like it and I couldn't fight my way through it. But far off in the land, way out in the ocean, I saw this little bitty island and it had one palm tree and one sand chair sitting there. And I wanted to get to my island. Because I thought it was sunny there and it was going to be okay if I got there. But it took me baby steps. It took me weeks and weeks to go to see my island. And I took baby steps. And I turned around. And this black mass was baby steps behind me. And I kept walking in baby steps. And I finally got to my island. I sat down. I put my toes in the sand. And I looked up. And this black mass was completely gone. I couldn't see any of it. It was gone. And I took a deep breath and said, you know, life's going to be good now. I've gotten through and gotten over this. Uh, another thing, though, that I had experienced was I had, um, it wasn't a fear of men. It was that I was uncomfortable to be around men I didn't know. And I was wired shut for nine weeks. And as soon as it became unwired, I was scared of men. So I figured, where can I go to work where I could see the Most men at the shortest amount of time. And I figured a lumberyard. So I got a job at a cashier at a lumberyard. And I saw a lot of guys really quick. And none of them scared me. None of them were going to hurt me. And the smell of the wood in the lumberyard was the smell of the oak wood that had hit me. And it kind of bumped up a lot of feelings for me. But after about three weeks, I didn't I didn't need to work there anymore. My my option of do, staying there and, and just working with the men. And so I quit and I learned that there's a lot of cute construction workers out there that come and buy things at lumber yards. <laughs> so that that was a good thing. That was a good thing.
1: That's a tremendous um, coping decision that you deployed there. Um Did you come up with that idea on your own, or was there someone that suggested to you to immerse yourself in what made you uncomfortable to bubble those feelings up and be able to process
0: them quick? I did not speak with anyone. Um, My mother's Cuban, and we don't tell our laundry to anybody. You know, we kind of, she didn't want a therapist come in and hearing all our business and knowing what was going on. So um, I, I did it on my own. I did it by myself. And during the the weeks of recovery, my parents would cut all those uh, things about Bundy out of the newspaper, anything they had to do with him. So I'd read the newspaper and had, you know, big squares cut out of it because they didn't want me to see anything. They didn't want me to hear anything and, you know, traumatize me more. So I did not go through therapy. I just did it on my own.
1: When you talked about not speaking with your sisters and having them not call you back, um social isolation can have a impact on the brain as much as physical pain does. And it can be um, even more painful. So hearing that, it it just breaks my heart. So you never, or did you as an adult connect with your roommate, Karen, who survived or any other sisters? Did you ever process why you think that they didn't reach out?
0: I sent a couple letters over the years, and I don't know if I sent them to the wrong address or whatever, but I didn't get a response, and I didn't know why I had to reach forth and try to reach out to people when there are so many of them that, you know, I I just didn't, and my life went on. I got married. I had a kid, and life was wonderful, and I didn't need to go back and, and hear Hear anything? I know they had lives too, and as 21 and 22 years old, they were traumatized. You know, as much staying in the sorority house, so they had their own things they were dealing with, and I think I was dealing with ours, and it just went in total opposite directions on how we were dealing with it. But over the years, I've never talked to any of them. And you know, there was a time in my life where I thought I needed them. I I needed them to tell me I had done nothing wrong. And that I had to leave sorority house, but they were going to be my friends and huddle around me and give me that love and support. And since I never got it, I figured out I didn't need it. That, you know, their comfort would have been wonderful, but I did it on my own. I did it without them. So, you know, they had, like I said, their own trauma they were living through. So um, we were just on different paths to healing. Going back to that
1: terrible night and the week in the hospital. When did you find out, and can you sort of walk us through if you're comfortable with it? um, During the actual attack, an instant can feel like an hour and you can have so many thoughts that go through your brain. So when you saw the black mass, you realized it was a man with a log, those, those dots were being connected. Did you immediately know this is a stranger, this is an attacker? Was there any kind of attempt that your brain made Is this a relative, you know, is there anything that happened or did you know immediately this is a stranger that has broken into the house? And then can you walk us through in your recovery? Like, when did you learn that you had lost Lisa and Margaret? When did you learn Karen was attacked, too, during your recovery, et cetera? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Without my glasses, I couldn't see who it was. It was just a big, blurry person standing there. And I didn't know what his intent was. I didn't process as fast as I could. I think because I was trying to focus. And because of focusing, I didn't concentrate on what he was doing there. Mm. Um, but I knew it wasn't good. I knew he was a bad man. I knew something bad was standing next, standing next to me. And that uh, put me into the fear of when he hit me the first time and then turned away, that I was going to get hit again. I just knew. You know, and as hard as he hit me the first time, I knew it was. I was going to die. I just had that sick feeling in your stomach that you can't control and you don't know what to do with it. And that's why I crawled into a little ball in my bed because I really thought if he couldn't see me, he wouldn't hit me. And, um, you know, it's just smallest ball and I'm squinching with my eyes. I wanted to see, but I didn't want to see what was next. So um, that was a hard time trying to take. It seemed like forever. And then it felt like three minutes. It was three o'clock in the morning. So it was, you know, dead of night and, you know, me sleeping and everything. And it was just something I woke up to. So I didn't I knew it wasn't a good thing. And then when and how
1: did you learn of the extent of his horrible murderous spree, Margaret and Lisa and the neighbor down the street and Karen's attack? Were you in recovery while you learned of the extent of his attack? Yes.
0: Yes. I had gone home a week after the uh, attack. So I was in Miami And my mother wasn't real good on um, giving information to me because, again, from lupus, she was so protective of me. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to re-traumatize me and hear bad things, you know, and find out my sorority sisters were dead and attacked. And so she told me little by little. So you're you're um, saying
1: when you went to the sorority house, when you left the hospital and you went in to look at your room and you saw the... Margaret's and Lisa's doors closed in the caution tape. So you did not know at that point that he had killed two of your sisters and attacked Karen also. No.
0: No, it was just during the weeks later that um, I actually think I heard it on television. We were living in Miami. So I think, you know, Mama tried to keep me away from TV. But um, I I, I remember that's the first time I heard of it. She didn't actually come and tell me. It was, you know, Margaret and Lisa Bowman, you know, just on the news coverage. And um, that's how I found out that they had been killed so what was finding that out like it it hurt it hurt so bad because i knew them i knew them as people and and they had so much to live for and lisa was so bubbly and how many times we sit in her room doing our toenails and our fingernails and you know with a bunch of sisters in there and she was just and both of them were so quick on helping us the pledges you know if we had questions to learn about the laws and bylaws of of kayo and they were just everyone would help anytime and stop and help us. And I think that's what I didn't understand why for a year I had so much community around me. And then to sit at home, it was my mom, my dad, and my sister. And that's that's how I recuperated. And I think I wanted to get out of there so bad and so fast because I felt like I was drowning. I was just drowning at home because I was feeling sorry for myself. I was mad. I didn't have my friends. I didn't have my high school friends. You know, it was just it was a bad bad time for me and I couldn't imagine what Lisa and Margaret's parents you know had to go through with their beautiful daughters.
1: More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. You have written A Light in the Dark, um a book about your experiences and I I, I apologize for for repeating this but just to to ask so during this process of writing the book, um, which I'd love to hear more about here as well. So you never connected with any of any of the sisters or any of their families, and since no. it has come out, there's been no, no. It's just so hard for me to fathom. I think that's why I keep asking that. It just makes I know, me so sad. I know. I'm I, know, I would love
0: to. I would love mm-hmm. to. And you know, I would love to reach out, and I'd love for them to reach out. So, it's...
1: what about the trial process and the prosecution process and the media coverage at the time, um, what was that process like for you um, working with law enforcement and, and how was that chapter in this?
0: Why, uh, when I went back to Miami to recuperate, the uh, Sun Sentinel, the Miami newspaper, put my name and address in the newspaper. And that was, we didn't know who had attacked me. And now everyone knew where I lived and my name and my address. So um, the police were called and I had um, there's a police car stationed across our street all day and night. It was they took turns and there was a police officer that actually sat by our front door in the first days because I was scared. My parents were really scared for me. And um, so the police there was a great just a relief to know that they were there. and then I did have um I got married in Gen, uh I'm sorry June of 1978. I was dating a guy in high school, I mean in college. We had known just
1: just 6 months later.
0: Yes. Were you engaged at the time of the attack? No. No, we hadn't even dated a full year. And it was um I think my mom wanted me to be safe and married and his parents thought it was a wonderful idea and I was like, "All right." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hadn't been through so many changes at that point. I was just on a, okay, whatever you say, yeah. on a frame of mind, because everything was whirl whirlwind. So I got married six months after the attack, and that was the uh, summer of 78. And in 78, in the fall, I was subpoenaed to be on the deposition. I had to go into a room, in a conference room in Tallahassee, with a long conference table, that I set at the head of the table. And on one side was defense attorneys and the other side was prosecution. And when I sat down, I looked down at the other head of the table and there was Ted Bundy. He was sitting there and I saw him and I had to take a deep breath. And I looked at him and I wasn't scared. I didn't feel anything. I was numb. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't expect to see this thing down at the other end. And to me, he just was like white with black eyes. He didn't even really look like a person. He was light skinned anyway, but he was just sitting there like this with his head and his, you know, like, come on, let's get over this. No, no one's gonna do anything to me. And this was the deposition. So I finally left out of that and went out in the hallway with my parents. And I almost threw up because I didn't know how to process everything and seeing Bundy at the end of the table. So the next time I was subpoenaed was to go to the grand jury and I went to the grand jury. And once again, there was Ted Bundy sitting at the table. So that was the second time I saw him. And I don't know if he was trying to intimidate me or anything, but he, he kind of, you know, was talking and the defense and uh, prosecution were talking and I don't even remember what they said, you know, it was in my own zone. And it was like, it was, it was just horrible to see him again. Um, now I'm really, I get through the stages of being hurt. And now I'm still mad because this is the one that took me out of my life. The life as I knew it, it was him. So then the third time I saw him was the trial. And it was in the spring of 79. And they had moved the trial from Tallahassee to Miami. So there was a big buzz in Miami of everything going on. And now everyone knew where I lived and they knew my name. And it was like the police were all around us and the courtroom was very hard to get to. It was downtown Miami. and It was swarmed with reporters and police cars and, you know, spectators and everything. And it went on. um, I think it lasted about four weeks. But it was my turn to testify. And I had to be put in through this crowd of people to get into the courtroom and I was put into a room with a bunch of uh, other people who turned out to be the paramedics and the police officer, and all the people that were around that night that helped us. and they were all testifying as well. So it was so nice to give big hugs to the paramedics because I remember them you know attending to me and helping me, and the police officers. it was just it was just a love fest as far as I was concerned. So it was my turn to testify, and I go in through the uh, galley. And I sit down at the witness box, and I'm sworn in, and I turn around, the defense on one side, prosecution on the other, and Ted Bundy sitting with his attents. And he was sitting there, like, acting like, oh, I'll you know, just get over with. You're never going to do anything. You're wasting my time. He was just really animated and just uncomfortable. He did not ask me any questions. The attorneys, attorneys did. And the prosecution asked, you know, were you attacked that night? What's your name? Where'd you live? You know, the common setting up the scene. And then the defense started asking me questions. And they asked me certain things. And then I'm still staring at Bundy and not comprehending what's going on or what I'm saying. And then the defense asked me one last question. And they said, is this the man... You saw and you accused of coming into your room that night and attacking you. And I wanted so much to put Ted Bundy away. I wanted to help convict him and kill him. And but I had to say, no, I don't know if that was him. Because I didn't have my glasses on and I never saw his face. And that still haunts me that I couldn't help convict him. I mean, he was convicted, but in my soul, I wish I had help. I did the best I could. And I told my story, but, um, that just has always bothered me that I couldn't help.
1: Kathy, you helped. Please do not harbor any guilt or any angst over that. I promise you your presence, your presence was enough. Your story was enough. Everything was enough. You are enough. You not identifying him positively in that moment, I promise you had no bearing Not only do we know that he was convicted, but also you survived and you were the brave survivor of a monstrous attack by a monster that you helped convict. Yes. And you know what? You were honest. You were absolutely honest. Your integrity is supreme. So I hope you sleep at night better knowing that you told the truth and that justice was served regardless. He was the monster you helped. Yeah.
0: And he was such a monster. He was so... The stories. They tell about him as a cute and intelligent and, you know, a nice guy down the street. And he was so not that he was so he was so manipulative that he wanted people to see him as a day during the day and try to act normal where he didn't have a job. He didn't have any money. He stole clothes. He stole credit cards, women's purses, and he looked in windows when he was a child and um, peeping Tom. And he just grew up and grew up in, into this hideous thing that he wanted no one to see the real Bundy. But he was out there. Even during the day, it was far, hard for him to cope. He wanted, he wanted to steal the souls of women. And he wanted that much control over what he did to them. And to say he was charming, he wasn't. He, he couldn't make it through law school. He went through two different schools and he quit. He couldn't handle it. He couldn't do the, the study and the, um, the intense um, thing it takes to go into a field like that. And he was just a loser. He really was. And he just, like I said, attacked women in bed or from behind. And he would never confront anybody. He never came front, front forward to attack someone. And he never—if uh, there was a man around, or if there's any way he thought he could be caught, he would turn his cycle around and you know just turn around and walk away, and go to a victim that was easily overcome. He is a monster, a
1: spineless monster. You are so brave. You were—you were so brave that night. You exhibited such resilience and such um, amazing tenacity and determination, the will to survive, the smarts, you outsmarted him times a million, you outbraved him times a million, and then you looked him in the eye three yes. times at a deposition, at the grand jury testimony, and on the stand you looked him in the eyes. He yes. is weak and a monster and you are incredible. Thank you. How do you feel now there have been changes made to the criminal justice system which protects victims and Um, Seeks to ensure they are not re traumatized multiple times by, for example, putting them in a room without any notice facing their monstrous attacker. Do you feel, um, how do you feel about the changes that exist now in place that your situation will not be repeated or is supposed to not be repeated anymore?
0: Yes. I think, oh, it's uh, amazing. I mean, You're a victim for one day, for one night, whatever happens to you, but then you're a survivor. The day after you're a survivor, even if it's something going on, ongoing, you have to get through it. You have to walk, take your baby steps and go anywhere else but what you're sitting in. And I think as uh, survivors now, they are being recognized and giving more authority and being able to take it on themselves and to handle more because they are given more instruction and more information.
1: This is a small detail, but can I ask you about your back door where the key code wasn't working? Um, did everyone know that it wasn't working? Tell me more about that.
0: The um, the lock, the padlock on the door was broken. It didn't always close. You know, you could do the alarm, I mean the code and open up the door and it didn't already always slam shut. And we had told the um, house mother and also our, um, our guy that helped us around the house and changed light bulbs and, you know, did all this stuff, and they just hadn't had a chance to get it fixed yet. And we think when he was um, at a bar, which is not far from our sorority house, he followed two girls home, two sisters that were coming home that night from the bar. And we think he followed them and hid in the bushes when he saw that the door unlocked and then didn't close all the way. That was his. He, that was his access to a house of forty sleeping women. And he picked up that piece of oak, and he knew he always he always used a crowbar, crowbar, or he used something else that he attacked women with. So this extension of the log was just something he was used to. So um, just that he could walk in like that is amazing, and yet, you know. So the back door is locked. You know, back then in 78, we weren't thinking of, you know, the guy next door coming to kill you. Mm -hmm. You know, that just wasn't in our our thoughts. And not everyone used the back door. The front door was the main entrance to the house. Um, But, you know, Mm -hmm. it happened. That's the way it happened. And um, it just, um, you know, when things happen to me, I deal with it and then I move on. Mm -hmm. And for having that back door, I can't blame anyone, because it was just a sequence of events, and it was Bundy. He was going to make his own thing happen. And if that door hadn't been broken into, he may have gotten into another house. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't that he had to do Kai Omega sorority. He followed two girls home from the bar, and he saw the um, option of going in or not. And that's what he did. He came in that door.
1: No other sisters testified
0: at the trial? Yes. Yes, Nita Neary was the sorority sister that had come home that night at 3 in the morning. And the light that shone up in our room were the lights from the car his date was bringing home. So when he came into the parking lot, the lights blew into our room. And because our window shades were always open, hanging plants on the rods, that's the car that drove up. That's the light. And Nita Neary was the sorority sister that came home. And she actually was coming around the side of the uh, rec room and he had come down the front stairs right straight out the front doors. So she saw him from the side view. He didn't see her because he was running out the door. So he came down the stairs, across the foyer and out the front door. And she was just turning the bend, just turning the corner and saw just part of him leaping through the house. And she also testified. Um, she helped draw the um, composite and it looked like him and she did a lot for the for the case and the prosecution. Also, my roommate testified and several other girls that were in the sorority testified at the trial. But
1: none of you saw none of them at the courthouse?
0: I did. and They were in a room in the big room and we hugged and loved each other. Oh. That was the first so, only okay. time. Okay, So,
1: yeah, what what was, can you share? What was that, what that like, was like for you? And did that feel like a, a connection and a closure or?
0: No, just a connection. Um, they told us not to talk to each other because they didn't want us talking about this, the trial. So they really didn't want, although we had nothing to want to talk about the trial. And it was interesting because it had been, you know, a year since the attack and it was like, I was tired and to see all these girls and I was kind of upset that none of them that, you know, they came to Miami. They knew exactly where I lived and none of them called and said, hey, we're coming to Miami. You want to get together? You know, it was like I, I didn't even know who was coming. I couldn't have, you know coordinated anything because I didn't know who was coming. So but for that to not happen, it kind of made me upset again. I see. So I don't know if seeing them made me be happy or sad. I see. We'll be right back with more of this story. We talked
1: about this a little bit when you and I spent time together in Orlando. But, you know, I I went to the University of Washington and I was a theta there, Kappa Alpha Theta. And Georgiana Hawkins uh, was a theta there. And she went missing on June 11th, 1974. And she was killed by Ted Bundy. And hearing you describe Chi Omega, which I still know all your songs too because I remember them all from Russian. But yours stands out. Um, Yeah, you guys did a great song, and I the joy that you describe, the sense of belonging, um, the positivity, the really special environment that living with a group of healthy, happy, supportive sisters can bring. Yeah, and then you, you know the poison, the poison that just exploded it all
0: that yeah. monster
1: was, it just, it's so heartbreaking. Cause I feel like I, ex- I experienced that and we would see, you know, in, in our book, we would see Georgiana Hawkins name and it just was so heartbreaking for us. We were the daughters of women around that time and who had had yeah. interactions with the monster at UW and in um, the Issaquah area and whatnot. These were his attacks before he moved to the East coast and inflicted pain in Florida and it just feels so visceral because I don't want to say naivety because it's just innocence that yeah. girls have at that age. And yeah. in that living situation, you know, you're flanked by fraternities and sororities and there's yeah. the alleyways that connect everyone. We also had the parking lot right behind our windows that faced out. We I don't even think we had. I don't even know if we had blinds. And the whole thing is that you live in an existence of joy and yeah. community. Um, and he he ripped that all away. He ripped it away from Georgiana Hawkins family and her sisters and that whole pledge class. And you guys just, it's just so heartbreaking.
0: Something I do do in my book, a light in the dark, there are 36 women that we know for sure, or we can, we can put together with Bundy Killingham, And I have each name. I tell a little bit about them, who they were, what they dreamt of, what they wanted to do. And I I gave a voice to that to that girl. I wanted, you know, my story is my story and I can talk about it. And each time I do talk, it heals me yeah. because it feels like I'm getting more off my more off my heart. And it's like shaving an onion. It just feels better and better. But the girls, usually in a book from Ted Bundy, you look for his victims and there's one paragraph. And it's each of the names, comma, and you know, yeah. it's just one paragraph with names in it. And that just seems so unfair because I, I continued and I have a life and they don't, but I don't want them to be forgotten. So in my book, I give 36 little biographies on each of the women. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Were you able to pursue your dreams and what dreams did you pursue and what did you learn and what adventures did you have?
0: After the attack it was a couple years later, I got divorced. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, I think whomever I had married six months after the attack was not a good idea, you know, just cause of the situation. And we just grew apart. We just didn't have this foundation. I think that we needed for a marriage, but, um, I did have my son, little Mikey. He was uh, two years old when I got divorced. So I was working, actually I was a teller at a bank. I worked, um, in, in the mornings at a bank. And one day, um, I, it was my turn to open my teller w- window coming back from lunch and I came down the stairs and I moved my window and this guy came up and he had a nice suit on, looked nice. And he had a leather, little leather pouch and he put it on the, on the counter. And he said, I want all your money. And I thought it was a joke, I'm like, what? <laughs> and he opened up his pouch and he had a gun in it. So now he's standing in front of me, holding a gun on me, asking for all my money. And I am just like freaked out. And the next thing I know, there were a police car behind me in the drive-through window. And this person saw him and ended up running out of the building. And the police pursued him and caught him. But that was an experience that um, I didn't expect to happen, was to be robbed at gunpoint. yes and i just
1: i feel like think you, you didn't you know behind you was this police car and he ran and i'm i'm picturing as the deter, deterrent i i you're so strong and you're so brave and i'm i i want to go back in time and shout to him do you know who you are doing that to she is the strongest bravest woman on the planet Do you know who you are trying to rob? You know, it's like you have so much,
0: the whole galaxy of strength in you. I mean. You know, at that point, though, I was underneath the counter with my legs just (laughs) (laughs) shivering. All the tellers got one little ball. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) But it was
1: okay. That's okay, okay, too. That's just the
0: physical. Your spirit is impenetrable. Um, Once I did the banking, um, I found that I couldn't handle hospitals. Um, being um, in the hospital for three months after the um, when I was first diagnosed with lupus mm-hmm. and then the years of uh, uh, surgery, actually, and chemo and then um, Bundy, that hospital experience was horrible. And it was so bad. I couldn't even go visit a friend who had a baby. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't walk through those doors. I just I'd sit outside and wait for them to come out. And I found this was not not normal, not something that. I should be able to walk anywhere I want. I should be able to, this phobia was something I didn't want to mess with. So I went and went to human resources and got a job at the hospital. So that every day I had to walk into a hospital and that really myself really fast. And I was able to walk in and out the back door anytime I wanted to.
1: And you, you also survived breast cancer. Yes. And was that, um, was that hospital experience more positive for you and of course a wonderful yeah
0: yeah it was I had um in theater in high school I met a lot of good friends and one of them was my friend Scott Rubin and we would play and act and do things scenes together and I actually ended up meeting him again and, and marrying him back in 1989 so that was great we got married and um I was, you know, I had me, my family, you know, my son, and we moved to Athens, Georgia, and we were having a good life. Then Scott and I decided we wanted to have a baby. So I went to the GYN to have a physical and say, you know, found someone finally who worked with patients with lupus, because not everyone does. And I just didn't want to go to somebody who didn't. So I did my homework and found the doctor. He did the exam that day and found a lump in my breast. And he goes, why didn't you tell me you had this? And I said, I didn't know. And it was the size of a pea. It was so small. And my husband had to go out of the country right when this was all happening at the same time. He had to go to Finland to do some work. Um, he's a brain scientist. And he was going over there to work. And he, uh, he left. And the gynecologist told me what it was that it had to be checked out. So I went to a surgeon while Scott was gone. And they couldn't aspirate it. So he said, I'm afraid it's canceled. But, of course, we have to do the whole whole thing of taking it out and sending it to to a lab. So now I told my husband about it when he came home. And he was really mad that I waited and didn't call him home right away. But that was my decision because he was there on business. It was work. And he was getting his Ph.D. So all this kind of was in my head falling into place. This is the way it had to go. So by the time they uh, removed the lump, it was stage two breast cancer. And I had to go through chemo again. And I just, that just wasn't fair. That just wasn't right to have to have chemo again. And I lost my hair. And my son didn't really comprehend what everything was about. He knew something was going on. You know, I didn't sit and cry and be, oh, me. I had my chemo. And I would go upstairs to the room for a couple days in our house and my mom and dad would come and visit and take my camping and, you know, doing all this. And I ask him now, you know, Mike, how did you feel knowing I had cancer? He goes, I got, I got to go camping a lot. Oh. <laughs> that was his memory of me having cancer. So um, everything everything settled down. Mm-hmm. And we decided again to have a, a baby. And about eight weeks into it, I had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And I know so many women go through miscarriages. And I dealt with the fact that I can do anything. I can get myself past and through anything. But I couldn't save my baby. I couldn't help him get through anything. And that took a toll on me. It really did. And I came to grips with it. And then we decided again to try to have a baby. And after 12 weeks, I lost my baby again. And... I, I couldn't do, I, I said to Scott, I can't do this anymore. I just, I can't handle it. And, you know, my emotions finally came back into play of who I was and what I had been through. And I see Michael and I have my Michael. And just because my life didn't go the way that we wanted it to go doesn't mean it's a bad life. It just took a different direction. And um, so after the second miscarriage, we decided to buy a sailboat. And we called her Sally. That became our new baby. (laughs) And then we got motorcycles and we ride motorcycles. So life's great. I'm enjoying every bit of it. It's just, I have two grandchildren now. We get to Mm. see them pretty often. And, you know, it's great. Life's great to go forward. That's phenomenal.
1: And tell us a little bit about your book. What is in there, this story of yours? What more can we learn about you in that book?
0: The story uh, starts out when I'm young and goes through more of the chemo stage and doctor, and how I was actually. I I tried to bring the reader into the room I went to and the cold table I had to lay on his exam room. It's like I want them to feel and feel the terrazzo cold floor in Miami and kind of put this all in their head as they're walking through my story. So I go into more detail um, about that and how in high school, how much fun I had. And there's pictures of me and uh, a mime troupe that we were in, and my husband mm-hmm. Scott's in there. So there's a bunch of photos and photos of Scott and I, and a lot of Mikey, because he was a you know he was a shining force in my life. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot more details about the right. story. And you say the t- the title is "A Light
1: in the Dark." Um, what is surviving that- more in Ted Bundy? Right. What is the light in the dark? Is it the car lights, headlights? that stopped him? Is it also, is it your family? Is it the island? Is it all of the above and more?
0: It's all the above. Physically, the light in the dark is the room at first. But then as my co-author, Emily Casey, wrote up, it was just like so much more. Mm -hmm. You know, that light had wove, has wove through my life. And it's not been as remarkable as that bright light. But then it has been because the light of my life and the light of my family and you know there's just so much to be grateful for, and yeah, you know, people have bad times, and I have bad times, and I'm just not gonna sit in a room and worry about it. I'm gonna get out there, and anyone who's going through anything, they can just like I said, the first day of the attack, you're a victim, the rest of your life, you're a survivor, mm-hmm. and you just need to go forward and find something and hope for something, find a goal, and just walk take your baby steps like I said, and Find something you want to do and do it. It's going to take forever to get there. You'll never be the same. You'll change forever. It's just how you're going to walk through life now and see it through a different image and see it the way you want it to make it to be. Yeah, Kathy, you're so
1: incredible. You are such a light yourself. And I knew it the second I met you in Orlando. And um, you are such a beautiful woman and human inside and out. I'm so grateful for you taking your time to share your story with us and to share um, such intimate and vulnerable um, feelings that you've had and trusting us with this platform. And for the example that you are to so many, you are such a brave survivor. Thank Thank you. you. Is there anything that you'd like, anything else that you want to share with listeners?
0: I just, my heart opens up to people that have had trauma And it's, you know, it's the next day it's the rest of your life and you can make it what you want to be. Don't don't be traumatized and don't try to fix it and go to people, go to family, go to friends, go to professionals. I'm not a therapist. I can only tell you how I have done it my way and any way they can see to get fit. Just don't don't wallow in it. Just put that foot forward and look, look the other way and keep going. Don't stop. Everything's good out there. The world needs you. You can contribute and you need to, and the world needs you to to help us get better. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.